It's time to think differently about healthcare, but how do we keep up? The days of yesterday's medicine are long gone, and we're left trying to figure out where to go from here. With all the talk about politics and technology, it can be easy to forget that healthcare is still all about humans. And many of those humans have unbelievable stories to tell. Here, we leave the policy debates to the other guys and focus instead on the people and ideas that are changing the way we address our health. It's time to navigate the new landscape of healthcare together and hear some amazing stories along the way. Ready for a breath of fresh air? It's time for your Paradigm Shift. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare, and thank you for listening. I'm Michael Roberts here today with my co-host, Scott Zeitzer. If you're just tuning in for the first time, this show is focused on the many ways healthcare is changing and how the consumerization of healthcare is affecting practices. We talk about this topic on a regular basis at p3practicemarketing.com, and we invite you to be a part of that conversation. Today, we're running part two of our conversation about how small practices can survive today. This was a conversation that we got started into and just realized we had a whole lot more to talk about than we could possibly cover in a single episode. So, you know, before we kind of really dig into the rest of the ways that small practices can survive, uh, Scott, we were actually wanting to jump into like a topic that we had touched on last week, which was physician brands and what that means at small practices. And you'd even had a note about like, hey, let's say that that physician moves from a small practice to a hospital what happens to the brand at that point? Right. And, and so to remind everybody that real big takeaway is, you know, if you want the, a good simplistic definition of brand, Michael, you had brought up, it's basically what they say about you when you're not in the room, which is a great definition. We'll have to figure out where that came from so that we can pat the right person on the back, uh, you know, about that. But I can't tell you how many times I have talked to a surgeon who's one of our customers, happy, and says, you know what? I'm getting bought out by a hospital. I'm tired, you know, fighting the fight, and I'm going to go work for a hospital. I'm really excited about it because, you know, whatever, there are a variety of reasons. I'm irritated about my own practice. I'm excited about working less. I'm getting older. I don't want to make every decision. All good reasons. And I always tell those docs, hey, protect your brand. When you're talking and negotiating with the hospital, let the hospital know you'd like to keep your website. Usually it's not going to stop anybody. Now, a lot of surgeons listening may go, why the heck would I want to pay for that? You know, and it's like, it's like insurance, man. It's, it's not, we charge a whopping $150 a month to our current customers who are on our platform for hosting the site, access to the content management system, patient ed, et cetera, et cetera. But just as important as of all that is like, you're protecting your brand, who you are, what you're about, what they're saying about you when you're not in the room. And whatever that cost is, hey, maybe you can get the hospital to pay for it. Maybe you can't, I don't know. But even if you can't get the hospital to pay for it, give it strong consideration. Because if a few years from now, you know, you're kind of going like, this is not cool, man. I don't like this. For whatever reason, there could be a million reasons. It's easier to make that transition back into private practice. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get that out, Michael, because you know our time was running out. And I went, ooh, that's important. Absolutely. And just to give the the attribution, Jeff Bezos apparently was the person oh, whoa, that said whoa, that. Oh, so, so I'm glad know. we're given the right, you know. <laughs> I think we have to like- there. I don't want Jeff and company 
And maybe he'll get a slot for you. I think I have to pay a dollar just to bring that quote up. I'm I'm not sure how that works exactly, but (laughs) all right. What's the licensing is to to Mr. Bezos? I do want to talk a little bit about consolidation. And there is a very long quote that Michael, I'll need you to uh, help me with, but it's in orthopedics today and it's uh, pandemic changes in healthcare spur practice consolidation. And there is a key quote from the article. Michael, would you help me with that? Because I cannot consolidate said quote. It's too long. It's too long. I can't read that. <laughs> so basically, they spoke to a whole bunch of different people. And the people that they spoke to came back and said, hey, even though there was some different like forms of aid that came to practices, you know, the economic effects of the pandemic. So picking up with the, the quote kind of midway through here, the economic effects of the pandemic, along with the increased pressures of added regulatory re- requirements, cost of doing business, challenges of working with hospitals, and a decrease in overall reimbursement may cause struggling orthopedic practice to merge or consolidate with more financially stable practices and systems. So all that being said, there's a whole bunch of changes and pressures on practices, and they may have to consolidate in order to weather all those changes. Yeah. And thank you for doing that uh, for me, because I think I would have gotten lost somewhere in the middle and, you know, been off having another cup of coffee. I will say this, you know, the pandemic really exacerbated whatever economic issues you were having, good and bad, by the way. But if you were having some tough times with referrals or or whatever, right, the pandemic really exacerbated that. That's definitely, uh, I don't know if anybody would argue with me about that. And so now you come on the other side of this pandemic and you're kind of going like, man, you know, what are we going to do about that? And a lot of people made the decision to say like, you know what? I'm tired. Again, I go back to that. I'm really tired. I don't want I don't want any more autonomy. Please tell me what to do. I will give the same advice of like, you may feel that way this year, but you may not in five years protect your brand. But there's going to be a lot of change, Michael, because of that. Like, you know, telehealth in orthopedics, to bring up this one specific thing, was essentially a non-issue in orthopedics. Like, People were talking about it, but it was mostly like, yeah, maybe one day or you'd get some outliers. But that is not the case anymore when it comes to telehealth, especially during the pandemic. And I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, Michael. What do you think? Do you think that orthopedic practices will start incorporating telehealth as a standard of care? It's interesting because this is actually a conversation I ended up having on on Twitter you know, the great news source of all news sources. But we, we got into some conversation last week and I was just asking people like, hey, like, if you could talk to a practice right now, what would you recommend? Judith Lindsay, shout out to Judith Lindsay. She jumped in though and, and was talking about basically not just tacking telehealth on as something to say like, yeah, I did it and there it is. But there's a whole like process that you can look into with this where you can actually be very strategic around how you're ministering care. It's not just a like, again, it's not just a check, I did it, but it, but it actually a, a more fully formed model of virtual care. It's, it's not just like, yes, I got telehealth, but no, like this is, what are all the different steps that lead up to an appointment? What are all the different things that people need to know? You know, online communication with your patients, all of those different components go into this. And then, yeah, I do think that telehealth and that that part of the experience can be 
very useful for ortho even specifically. So again, to continue on with that same conversation we had last week, Judith pointed me to Mark Milligan, who does a lot of work with uh, PT and with ortho. And he was talking about, I'd reached out to him and said like, hey, how do you deal with some, some of that like reluctance in orthopedics towards telehealth? He brought up a couple of points saying like, he sees resistance if an orthopedic surgeon reviews it as a revenue competition. But if there's a chance to increase patient value or outcomes or in bundled payment models, it can be really successful. And so like, I think that's a really great sense of perspective, you know, like, one of the things that that I think that we talked about quite a bit throughout last year was orthopedic surgeons can't do surgery through that telehealth visit. So are they losing their money? Are they, you know, all those kinds of things. But if it's a part of the whole care, if you're kind of like thinking through that whole process, yeah, it affords a lot of advantages, but it can't be this kind of either or mentality. You are going to have to take a step back and figure out how to weave it into your practice and and answer a lot of why questions like, why, you know, starting with why would I use telehealth? And I think when COVID hit, it was, I have no other way to, you know, take care of uh, some of my patients. And so it was just almost required. And now that it's gone, I've seen a little bit of both. I've seen a lot of orthopods basically saying, whew, now no, I don't have to do telehealth anymore. Okay, cool. You know, uh, that's fine. But I'm also seeing a lot of orthopods who got feedback from patients who are like, you know what, you did a great surgery on me and I feel great. And do I really need to come in so that you can marvel at your incision? I don't think they say it that way. I had surgery during COVID. Lucky me. I, I fractured my wrist and required some expert orthopedic care. Thank you, Dr. Claude Williams down in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, who operated on my hand. And yeah, I got operated on and he did a great job. And, you know, the first time I came in, I, I really did need to go in. They needed to, you know, remove some uh, bandages, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was kind of nervous, make sure it was all working right. But, you know, some of those extra follow-up visits, you know, they basically part of it certainly was needed. Like you're not going to be able to take an x-ray remotely. Not happening. But did I need an x-ray every single time? Probably not. Could they have saved some time, still build correctly? Like you said, weaving into bundled payments and all the other stuff. It is Everybody needs to get reimbursed. I strongly believe that. But at the same time, could time for both the surgeon as well as for the patient been better managed. And yeah, you know, I think telehealth definitely has a place And you brought up the PT part of things. That's another excellent place where, you know, a lot of times you go in for PT and it's really important that you're there for obvious reasons. Like, you know, you really need to bring, you know, your arm this way, et cetera. But there are a lot of other times where it's like, you know, you could really just have a telehealth conversation and make sure that things are progressing fine. Absolutely. So it is about weaving it in correctly. And I do think for orthopedics, again, how you weave it in will be the critical win. Just looking at an Orthopedics Today article that we'd pulled, you know, as a, as a source for this, like, article is a virtual orthopedic visit here to stay after the COVID-19 pandemic. In a lot of ways with the world opening back up, where it might make sense. And, and you know, you're talking about some of these like kind of uh, post-surgical appointments, that sort of stuff. Like also, you know, they're really highlighting that if you have a good relationship already established with a patient, that's again, like a further indicator that this could be like a good fit. Look for that opportunity to really like make it easier on, on both sides of the equation. So again, just it's not going to be for everybody and for every appointment. It's not the like either or scenario here. You, you do have to think through how that fits. Okay. So telehealth is definitely a possibility. 
we think, <laughs> in our opinion, it's, it's definitely a possibility. But in terms of, again, how that small practice survives today, how it can thrive going forward, you know, it's not something of, oh, well, we just couldn't get bigger. So I guess we just have to stay here and yeah, woe right, is us, right. you know, we made it. But again, the freedom that a practice allows, and I'm, you know, freedom in quotes, because like, yeah, they are longer days. It is, you are running your own business. You have a lot more decisions to make, but you do have the freedom to make those decisions. Hey everyone, it's Michael here with your P3 Pro Tip for the week. When was the last time you checked in on your practice's Google Map listings? Even if your business information hasn't changed, did you know that Google will sometimes make changes to your listing based on information reported by others? Practices that don't regularly check in on their Google listings often find business details that are inaccurate or incomplete. Regular check-ins also help you keep up with new listing features so that you can provide as much information as possible about your practice. Having accurate and complete listings is not only very helpful for patients, but also beneficial official for SEO. If you're just joining us, I'm Michael Roberts here today with my co-host Scott Zeitzer. We're talking about the paradigm shift of healthcare, all the different ways that healthcare is becoming more consumerized and and how the the practice is dealing with those changes. So far, we've been talking some about consolidation. We've been talking about telehealth. And let's talk about the entrepreneurial physician. You know, for the independent practice going forward, that entrepreneurial physician may be the one type of physician that can run that kind of practice, you know? So in different conversations that we've had with practices over the years, we get the chance to really learn about what an entrepreneurial physician looks like, you know? So I'd be interested to hear some of, you know, some of the traits that I guess come to mind for you, Scott, when you start thinking about who those entrepreneurial physicians are. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, we've got I don't know how many people on our platform. It's a joke that runs between Michael and me where I'll say, oh, we have like close to a thousand physicians on uh, surgeons on the platform. And Michael go like, how do you have that number? And I'm like, I don't know. It's a rough count, man. You know, we got this many practices. I multiplied it by this number and I got to that number and Michael just kind of shakes his head. It's like one of these days we have to count, but I'll just leave it with, we have a lot. And there's a subset of those surgeons that we talk to on a regular basis where they're asking a lot of really good questions uh, that have a lot more to do with than are you telling people that I do a total joint, you know, that kind of thing. They're thinking about their practice mix. They're talking about how to get the word out about uh, how they're doing, what types of procedures they're doing, how to expand their practice reach, so to speak, that could be like by getting the word out in the same geographic area or spreading it out. It's not just that they're willing to spend money, say, on on an ad campaign. I mean, great. You know, I guess that is entrepreneurial because you're spending money, right, on marketing or an ad campaign. But it's the kind of questions that lead up to the need to do so, I think, really are the telling things, which does get back to like, What kind of procedures am I, do I really want to focus on? How do I tell people about those specific procedures so that they have good expectations? There's a real concern from them, from those surgeons about how they're perceived, not just them, but their practice as a whole. There was a surgeon I worked with and we we did almost like a secret shopper. (laughs) We made some phone calls and those phone calls were made during lunch. Now, 
if a lot of practices out there just don't answer the phone during lunch, they basically just assume you're going to call back, you know, because why wouldn't they call back? And, you know, we, we joke, like if, if you're the only practice in a rural area, like it's cool. You're going to call back. That's it, man. <laughs> right. But if you're one of four practices in the area, I don't know. I probably would call the next practice. Like yeah. I have lunch off. I work yeah. for a living. I have to make another phone call, but cool. Some practices allowed you to leave a message. Some did not, by the way. And then when the practice called back, the person who left the message on purpose didn't answer the call. Mm. They wanted to see if the practice would call back again. And by the way, the answer was zero times for a lot of practice. They were like, check, I called them back. That's up to them now. And it's like, look, man, I get it. You're very busy. But if that's your standard operating procedure, imagine how many, you know, potential patients fell through the cracks, went somewhere else who had private insurance and wasn't going to accept that type of care, uh, patient care, customer service care, excuse me. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And those people that I talk to, you can tell from that conversation how they're thinking a lot more than just about the surgery that's coming up. Yeah, we're talking sure. about that too, man. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's interesting just getting to sit in on as many conversations as I have in the time that we've worked together, you know, like hearing people talk about, hey, we're making sure that we're putting maybe physical therapy in here. We're making sure that we yep. can do x-rays in our practice. They're taking some risk in what they're spending, again, just on what kind of patient care they can offer. You know, we want to make it easier for the patient to be able to come back for physical therapy. We want to be able to do the x-rays here. Maybe they're investing in an ASC, you know, ambulatory yeah. surgical center. So like they're investing in ways that maybe other practices aren't. They're taking more chances with those kinds of investments because all of all these investments are right to a degree, they're going to be a risk. And so yeah. they're doing these things to provide better patient care, to provide more opportunities to be able to take care of that patient and build that patient and do these kinds of things. I mean, that when run correctly can mean a more profitable practice. That's how you, these practices can make more money. So the whole concept of that more holistic thinking of being able to see all the things that a patient needs. Telehealth that we were talking about, uh, like having a more like integrated virtual care kind of thing to where it's not just, hey, maybe they'll hit the phone and maybe they won't. You know, I think the only thing like more discouraging than like constantly going to voicemail is getting that like the voicemail is full message because oh you know, yes. like if, if the voicemail is full, like obviously they already are bad at this and I'm never going to get a call back ever, ever. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There are a lot of telltale signs. I always tell every uh, surgeon that we work with, call your practice and see how they answer the phone. Don't call the back line, you know, the special back line that they can, you know, so they don't have to wait for anybody. No, no. Call your own practice. How long does it take to go speak to a human? You know, mm -hmm. that kind of conversation. I always, this is a true story. It, it was like over a decade and I cannot remember the sports medicine person who reached out to me. I didn't know the person very well. It was a friend of someone that we do some marketing for. And they were complaining that they weren't picking up cases young orthopod just just out and doing the standard build business by uh you know living in the er he was a sports medicine fellow and he just couldn't figure out for the life of him why he wasn't getting more sports medicine cases 
And as he's running out the door for one of those cases, he hears the front desk say to the prospective patient, sir, as I've told you before, we don't do sports medicine. We're orthopedic surgeons. And every orthopod listening to his conversation is going, no, you know, but yeah, that actually happened. The entrepreneur is going to hear that story and not shake their head and go, I got to get out of this business, right? Because I get it, man. Like if you don't want to deal with that, maybe the hospital is a better place or the mega group, nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying like, oh, you're weak. Not at all. It's just how you're wired, man. If you don't want to deal with that, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't want to deal with that. That being said, the entrepreneurs that we talk to hear that. And there's one in particular that we were talking to and the surgeon said, wow, that's just great opportunity, man. Because if you could just train those people to answer the phone better, imagine how many more patients we're going to get before the other guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's an entrepreneur. Yeah. Right? I think you have to be a stubborn optimist, optimist, excuse me, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that in my head. So we've had a chance to talk with larger groups about these kinds of things. And we're talking to like the administrator and the marketing manager and maybe the CFO for the group, you know, and you think about sure. like the groups that are large enough to have that depth of resources they can focus on that. Like that can be the thing that they look at all the time, you know? So there's definitely like a very real challenge for the small practice entrepreneur that's trying to figure out how to make that happen and actually see patients at the same time. So like there's a huge, huge commitment that that physician is making. And and we definitely appreciate that. And then are are acknowledging it. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of my own business. You know, we've got 15 people that work, you know, at, at our company, but we also outsource a lot as well, because there's a lot of niche things that we need to get done that there's no way I'm going to hire a full-time person to do that. But there's some really expert people who do that. And I think for those small practices, without a doubt, you know, how many times have we been on the phone, Michael, with the office manager, who is also the head of marketing? and the head of patient care, and the head of taking care of the doctor, and keep going, right? Right. Uh, Responsible for understanding the EMR. Like, that's an easy job in and of itself. And it's like, yeah, that's, I go back to stubborn optimist mode, right? So on the one hand, you go like, I'll never get anything done, because I just don't have enough resources to focus on these things. And, you know, my advice about that is like, that's how we've made a living over the years. It's like, yeah, of course you don't have a full-time marketing person. You're going to hire us and the whole team to do your marketing for you. And we're going to explain why we do what we do and how we do it and why we're expert at it. You're going to pay us X. And, you know, if we do our job right, you're going to, you're going to make two X or three X. And here's the, here are the case studies that prove that we're saying that right. Well, it's not just for say marketing. There's a lot of other areas where, you know, that kind of outsourcing might be helpful to the small practice. It's worked well for us. It works quite well for lots of other companies. It's how so many small businesses <laughs> exist. Uh, they're helping each other out. You know, a lot of small businesses yeah. just make money off of other small businesses. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, the different things that we've talked about, some of these different models. I mean, like we work with some practices, you know, and even as a small practice size, if they're going through a merger with somebody else, there's still going to be a small practice, even after that, you know, consolidation has happened. If, if a group of eight and a group of three get together, they're still a pretty small practice. So, I mean, I think that this is definitely a time where people have to be very creative 
about how they're going to make this kind of stuff work. Like, I think it's very easy to get into like an either or mentality. I'm independent. And so I'm never going to be a part of the large group. So we always have to stay small. And so that's how it will always be. And that, that can be very dangerous to a practice. I mean, you can kind of hurt yourself over and over there because you're just not willing to, to take those chances. I agree. Conceptually, everybody thinks it's better when it's larger. Oh, you know, if only we had more docs, you know, it'd be easier. We could hire more people. And it's like, maybe, but I go back to the outsource model for the smaller. And as you get larger, you know, Michael, we've dealt with a lot of what I'll call larger small practices where there's 10 or 12 people in the group or even more where you would think they'd have all that stuff worked out, but because they grew so fast, they couldn't keep up with their growth. And it was quite the mess, you know, to deal with that. And we had to fly in and we were walking them through how to kind of, you know, untangle all of that. And it's, it was some heavy lifting. And so it is about finding that right balance when it comes to getting things done. I I remember when COVID hit, I was talking to a good friend of mine, an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Kirschenbaum. And this was right when COVID was getting started. And he said, you know, this was just his opinion. He said, you know, the smaller practices are going to deal better with all these horrible changes that they're going to have to deal with. And I said, why do you say that? And I said, because it's going to be three guys at a dinner table basically saying, all right, what are we going to do? (laughs) And we're either going to suck it up and, you know, pay the office manager and the two nurses and we're just going to make less or not. You know, we're going to have to make a decision about that. And that would have been handled over a bottle of wine and some steak. I mean, that he was, of course, joking a little bit, but I get it. You know, it's less people. And he said, man, the practice with like, you know, 50 or 60, that'll be a little bit easier too, because they'll have a CFO and the CFO will just come out and go, hey man, this is what you're going to do. You know, I've worked out the numbers and here's what we're going to do and here's how it's going to work. And, you know, that's great. And, you know, if you were an orthopedic surgeon at a hospital, same setup, you know, the hospital come back, you go, here's what we're doing. But I, I did find out like he was, he was right. He said, you know, the practices with about eight people in them, that was going to be harder because, you know, it's harder to get consensus among eight people, yeah. let alone eight orthopedic surgeons. And I say that with love. And that's a, something in itself. And, you know, I think of that statement about, you know, eight surgeons in a group and getting consensus and how you do that. That's a topic we could talk about on a separate conversation, Michael. I think we have like a whole topic of like, you know, how do you work in an eight to 10, 12 person practice? Like how do, do you form little subgroups? You know, I'm joking. Yes, you do. I, I think that would be a conversation in itself. And it goes back to this, like, that balance, like what is required from a balance perspective to be entrepreneurial? You got to want to be entrepreneurial. You got to have this stubborn optimism. You got to listen well. And apparently in my case, you have to talk a lot. I mean, that's just me. Yeah. And, and in wrapping up these thoughts, you know, like we talked some about like this past episode and, and today, you know, looking at the specialty mix, making sure that there's enough diversity there using new technology, using telehealth visits, but in in the context of a whole virtual care, not just slap it on and say, okay, now we're done with that. 
And then, you know, it may be the, the entrepreneurial practices that last as the independent practices going forward. So there's a lot to consider. It'd be interesting to see how this continues to develop. It is easy to get the kind of chicken little mentality. The sky is falling. Oh, no. Right. You know, like small practices are disappearing. We don't think that's the case, but it, it is going to have a lot of change coming up. So, you know, as always, thank you for joining us today. We have these kinds of conversations all the time over at p3practicemarketing.com. Um, I would love to talk to you more about that. Until next time we get to talk, have a great week. Thanks so much. Thanks again for tuning in to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare. This program is brought to you by Health Connective, custom marketing solutions for medtech and pharma. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.